And it really strikes me that this desire to control our fertility, to overcome infertility, the anxiety, the uncertainty that's introduced with the fall of man is about one of the oldest tales um, that we have throughout history. Hey, CCV family, this is uh, Aaron. Wanted to just tee up this episode for you today. We're going to actually skip the the normal uh, segment one sort of news uh, conversation we do because uh, we want to jump straight into this conversation around the Alabama ruling. Um, as with everything, this is certainly a sensitive discussion, but but getting into conversations around in vitro fertilization or artificial reproductive technology um, is maybe one of the most sensitive and controversial uh, things we do uh, at CCV. And that says a lot because there's there's not a lot we touch that, that isn't uh, pretty sensitive. Um, but I think I want to what I want to ask you today as you're listening to this conversation with our friend uh, Emma Waters from the Heritage Foundation, uh, especially if this is an issue that you've either not thought a lot about um, or maybe you're you just think what's wrong with IVF? Why would we want to be talking about regulating IVF? I want to ask you to approach this conversation with a really open mind because um, there's so much more that goes into this industry, into this conversation than a lot of Christians we see today realize. Um, and the positions that we take it, at CCV uh, are not arrived at lightly, uh, especially when you're talking about uh, issues of infertility. Um, it is is something that's very personal, very difficult for a lot of families. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna dive into this with the utmost grace that we can, but we also want to uh, talk really clearly about uh, a very profitable industry uh, that we're seeing cause a lot of harm um, and a, a nation and a culture that's heading headlong down a, a path. Uh, that has some pretty serious and vast implications, um, not just for children, but also for for women and families. Um, so again, uh, excited about this conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Enjoy it. Um, there's so much uh, to unpack from this uh, Alabama decision. Uh, and just uh, ask for uh, your grace as you're listening to this and your prayers for us uh, as we're uh, unpacking uh, a very serious conversation. Mike Andrews, Aaron Baird, David Mahan with you today and joined by Emma Waters, who is a research associate for the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Her work focuses on marriage and family, sex and gender and assisted reproductive technology policy. Emma is also a visiting fellow with Independent Women's Forum and a monthly contributor with World Magazine. Her work is also found in Fox News, Newsweek, The Federalist, the Institute for Family Studies, The Daily Signal, and many other publications. She's a graduate of Lee University with a double major in political science and biblical and theological studies. Emma, thank you so much for joining the narrative today. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, we want to talk to you today about the Alabama Supreme Court case that I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard at least pieces of. It's another one of those topics that we tend to cover here on the show where people might hear pieces of it, but they don't have the full story. So we want to try and go a little bit deeper uh, into some of the underlying issues or the underlying imp or greater implications of this case. But I'd like to just start off with, if you could, could you kind of give us an overview of the case for people who may be only hearing about this through the media and don't know some of the finer details of it? 
Absolutely. So this case originated after a 2020 incident when a fertility clinic actually left a frozen embryo storage container unsecured. So they left it unlocked and a patient from the adjoining hospital came into the fertility clinic, opened the embryo freezer and actually dropped an entire container of embryos. Now, when the parents of these embryonic children heard about this, they filed a lawsuit under Alabama's wrongful death of a minor act, which previously had only been applied to children who were born outside the womb or unborn children inside the womb. So they argued that the fertility clinic had acted in a negligent and careless manner with the protection of their embryos. And so they wanted to hold them accountable legally um, so that they could have some sort of um, financial and legal recourse for the loss that they had suffered. Now, when this case first went to trial, the trial court actually ruled that the embryos involved were the property of the parents, not persons who should be protected under the wrongful death of a minor act. And so when the Alabama Supreme Court picked up this decision, their primary ruling, um, which is rather narrow, um, I think far more narrow than a lot of people have covered uh, on the news, is that they ruled that should a parent sue a fertility clinic under the wrongful death of a minor act, that those embryos in question were considered persons uh, for the purpose of that case. So while the ruling did extend a personhood uh, to all embryos should a lawsuit occur, it doesn't necessarily go so far as to say that all embryos are necessarily considered uh, persons under Alabama's law. And it certainly doesn't uh, outlaw destruction of embryos or the practice of IVF itself. So it really is targeted on ensuring that parents have legal recourse should a fertility clinic act in a negligent or careless manner with their embryos. So, so Emma, just to, to clarify that there then, so this, this decision uh, saying that uh, embryonic children uh, are, are human lives only would is only in the context of a civil lawsuit in, in regards to a, a wrongful death claim. Um, so, so really only in very similar situations to what we saw happening here, where uh, there was a, a, a IVF clinic that was pretty negligent in how they were storing and caring for those those embryonic children. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So you know, as we're as we're looking forward from here, where does this case go next? Is it being appealed? What's the sort of status of this this specific case? Yes. So there's obviously been a lot of political fallout following the decision. Um, and so this has sparked a national conversation that's really captured uh, everyone's attention in Washington, D.C. and in many states beyond that. So uh, today, actually, while we're recording on February 29th, um, the Alabama House and Senate just voted to extend full immunity to all fertility clinics in Alabama. Initially, they had considered a law that would only extend full immunity um, for about a year so that they could reconsider the implications of the case, but they decided to do it in perpetuity today. Um, so the governor has not signed this law uh, 
well, sign this bill into law yet, but this is a massive step in the wrong direction. Again, to reiterate, all the Alabama decision did was provide parents legal recourse when the embryos that they entrusted to the fertility clinic were destroyed due to the negligence of the clinic. And so this was a really good move in the right direction insofar as it was empowering parents and their embryonic children against a largely unregulated and unaccountable fertility industry with very few federal laws or state laws that really govern the practice. And again, when parents come to a fertility clinic um, and engage in in vitro fertilization, the thing that they have in mind is the painful struggle with infertility and the hope that they will be able to create and birth a child through this process. Unfortunately for the fertility clinics involved, this is first and foremost a business for them. And they're ensuring that they're protecting their interests first, which means protecting themselves from lawsuits, as well as ensuring there's not too much regulation overseeing what they do or how they treat the embryos. So this decision, particularly in Alabama, is a really disappointing one because it now strips parents of the legal right that the court decision tried to give them. Um, So it will be an open question of what else happens in Alabama. Um, Right now, all Republicans um, and Democrats too, but Republicans I think are particularly struggling with this on the federal and state level really feel the pressure to fall into a binary position of either they have to say they fully support all IVF with no limitations or restrictions or they're concerned they'll be painted as an anti-IVF extremist who wants to take rights away from infertile couples. Now, that is not actually a realistic um, binary that I think most uh, Republicans fall into, but it's certainly the one that they're feeling pressure to fall into. Emma, b- before yeah. we get to that, because I want, I definitely want to get there, but I, I want to admit my ignorance on just, I mean, I, I don't know if I ever had before coming to CCV, a real substantive discussion around IVF or surrogacy. And, and I'm ashamed to say that, but I think there's there's a lot of people who like know very little about even what we're talking about here. Um, there's an industry side of this, right? Which I think is weird. I mean, to get with what you just talked about, um, I'm, I'm in my mind, I've never seen a commercial, but if, if there was a commercial, I'm, you know, they're talking to parents that can't have children and, you know, we're going to create this beautiful life and, you know, it's all about life. Right. Yeah. But then, you know, when I, when I read your article, you know, we've got, we've got a sterile lab with, with uh, you know, it's, it's unsecured, you know, we drop a Petri dish and, and babies just die. And so th- there's so much there to unpack. <laughs> um, you know, what, what does the industry side of this look like? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. So in a typical, um, we'll we'll talk about IVF as as a way of explaining like the general industry itself. So in a typical uh, in vitro fertilization round of treatment, parents will come to a clinic um, once they're diagnosed with infertility or without a diagnosis of infertility. Um, They're allowed to use the treatment either way. They just won't necessarily have health insurance coverage. Um, So they go through um, what can be a rather painful and uh, complicated process of retrieving the eggs from the woman in question. And they can retrieve um, upwards of 20 to 30 eggs um, at an absolute maximum, which introduces a host of uh, complications for the woman's body from the hormone that are being used to the process of hyperstimulating her body like that. Because the um, woman only produces one egg naturally at a time, and now she's being you know injected with drugs to, to produce 20 to 30 eggs. Uh, Jennifer Lull's documentary yeah. about 10 years ago, Exploitation, 
just revealed so much. And we don't, we don't have real data showing what's the impact on the woman's body long-term for, you know, tricking her body into, you know, producing 20 to 30 eggs in a cycle. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, so there's just a lot of complications there. There's of course thing collecting, um, sperm from the men who are the husband who's involved, hopefully, or the men who are involved. And there's been a lot of critiques, especially among evangelicals and other Christian groups about this process alone, because while it's not necessarily a medical extraction, there are many times, uh, very unsavory experiences where men are sent into a room with access to a pornography to produce the sperm for this. Um, and this is a very gruesome, and a uh, terrible image, but this is what commonly will happen in fertility clinics, um, which underscores, I think, a couple of layers of problems just with how Christians even think about this. And so at that point, they then uh, use the sperm to fertilize the egg in a Petri dish in a lab. So you'll oftentimes see pictures uh, of microscopes, doctors in full gear, um, and they're looking at these very, very small um uh, egg and sperm to try to fertilize them. And there's a few different techniques that you can use, but that's typically um, how the process goes. Once the embryos are uh, created, they're either transferred into the woman while they're still fresh or they're frozen uh, and preserved for a later time. When it comes to the industry side of this, the fertility clinics uh, that are involved in this process only have one federal law governing them. And this is the pregnancy, I think it's the clinic success outcome, pregnancy success outcome act of 1992. Those are most of the words I think involved in the title, which primarily requires clinics to report their success rates to the CDC. They also have to report a few things such as the number of preterm births, um, the chance of multiples, any birth defects. Um, so for example, we know that children who are born from in vitro fertilization have a higher rate of cancer, autism, minor birth defects like cleft palate, um, and even a higher rate of congenital heart defects or failure, depending on how it plays out. Um, and so there's a real question of in intentionally using in vitro fertilization, you're actually increasing uh, the risk onto the mother and the child, especially. Um, and so fertility clinics have very little regulation on the federal level, and then even less usually on states. And unlike adoption or unlike organ donation, money is involved in this entire process. So you're paying the fertility clinics um, for every step of the medical treatment. You're paying the fertility clinics to uh, store your embryos. And if you decide to use donor egg or sperm, you're actually directly buying that off the market. Um, and as Jennifer Law and others have highlighted, in many of these cases, if you're using donor egg and sperm, you're actually flipping through um, something similar to like a dating app. And you're looking at stats on the different donors. How tall are they? Where did they graduate from school? What are the other uh, strengths that they bring to the table? And then you're selecting donors based on that. As you can imagine, there's a lot of eugenics concerns within this too, because there are certain types of donors who look a certain type of way that tend to be selected more often than others. So this has received a lot of pushback um, across the board in, in how this part of the industry tends to work. Um, but again, to highlight, this is all largely unregulated and any yeah. attempt to pass regulation is just, yeah, shut down pretty hard by the fertility industry. Well, and, and that's the, you know, that's what I, I was reminded of of this story uh, or when I when I read the Alabama story, I was reminded of, of our experience when I was in Arizona. Again, this is probably 
12, 13 years ago. Um, and, you know, even at, at the time we had brought forward some uh, informed consent legislation on IVF. And I, I've said this before that at the at the state level, um, actually the hard, the hardest two issues to work on at the state level are, are IVF and divorce reform. Right. Uh, even even more so than regulating abortion or or transgender issues or school choice. I mean, genuine because everybody has an infertility story and everybody has a divorce story. Um, and and what we saw, especially on the IVF issue, though, uh, that made this particularly difficult uh, was the uh, the multi-billion dollar IVF industry uh, that would rain down all types of uh, of political attacks when you when you I, I, honestly our bill was just wanting to inform women about how the uh, embryos were going to be handled and wanting to inform women of the potential risks of having their eggs extracted and then actually that bill got introduced the, the backlash in the media was so great we weren't actually prohibiting anything we weren't trying to literally just inform consent uh then that that bill got you know the, the backlash was so great we said okay what if we just did reporting what if we just got a sense because this was in Phoenix in Arizona where the Phoenix uh, World Egg Bank is and there's millions of embryos there uh, and even just doing reporting what the IVF industry did is they sent uh, letters out to all of their patients that said if this bill were to pass we would have to stop your IVF treatments which was completely untrue it was it literally was was not going to prohibit anyone from doing anything just saying women have the right to know of the the risk of the, these procedures um and the IVF industry just like they're doing here um where they're cutting off people's procedures and stopping them when nothing in this decision was going to stop them from doing it yeah, no, you are spot on here. And I think it really highlights a lot of the political motivation here to drive a particular narrative that does not actually reflect uh, the facts on the ground, um, but is certainly devoted at ensuring there's as little oversight into what they're doing as possible. Um, and so, yeah, in Alabama, there were three fertility clinics that temporarily paused uh, their IVF treatments to, quote, reassess the implications of this decision. Now, I think the honest answer is that this is likely politically motivated. Um, but I think it's also worth considering that if the Alabama decision was going to require the highest standard of medical care um, be shown to these embryos, perhaps they uh, realized that they weren't doing that and that there were potential openings for lawsuits um, if people started really paying attention to the treatment of embryos in their care. Right. And I, I, I want to drive that point home because I think that is that that just shows how the IVF industry has operated. And again, this is um, this is so difficult to talk about because it, 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 I'm, I'm having flashbacks to the, the SAFAC conversation where we were talking about the children's hospitals there, right? And so many people have been blessed by uh, the, the children's hospitals and have had great experiences there. And in this situation, so many families have, have, have children today, you know, little boys and little girls that they love and their lives are, are so blessed because of this IVF industry. But there's so much there's so much collateral damage created by it, uh, and to be able to even have that conversation anymore uh, is to is to be told that you're trying to ban these procedures. And, and so your, your point there, Emma, that these clinics in in Alabama that are, are stopping this are doing it for either there, there's only two reasons why they would right either because there was nothing in this decision. You can go read the decision for yourself. It's very straightforward that said these procedures have to stop. 
right? All, all it said was that either one, so that, that they had to be treated ethically. Uh, so either one, uh, these clinics are stopping because they're not treating these children uh, humanely. They're not, not treating these embryos in a safe and ethical ma manner. Or what I think is more likely um, is they recognize they don't really care about the the effect this is that stopping these procedures is going to have on their patients. Uh, long term, they realize this is going to impact their bottom line. So it's better to stop this and say, "Hey, we're considering it, considering banning, uh, not doing IVF anymore because of this decision." To put the political pressure on Alabama and other states that might look to try to regulate reasonably IVF. Yeah, no, you are you're spot on. Think about um, some people may have seen the Netflix documentary about the fertility doctor who over the course of a few decades actually replaced the donor sperm with his own sperm when he was doing artificial insemination treatments. And so they found out over time that he had fathered about a hundred children in his community through this method. And in some cases, the parents thought that it was the biological father's sperm that was being used and this doctor exchanged it without their knowledge. So this is a massive violation of uh, medical ethics as well as just uh, the understanding of a child has of who their father is and where they've come from. And so there have been multiple state level efforts to actually criminalize the knowing exchange of one uh, egg sperm or gamete for another. And then there was a federal bill introduced last year that would do the same thing. And all it would do is say that if you as a doctor knowingly change the egg sperm or gamete in a process that you could be held liable. The American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is the largest fertility clinic or fertility organization that sets a lot of the guidelines and recommendations for the industry, initially opposed this ruling and said that they were going to score against it. And then after this office worked with them quite a few times, they finally said, okay, fine, we're going to be neutral. We're not going to advocate for this. We're not going to say it's a good thing, but we won't come after you. And this is the this is the industry side of it of what you're dealing with here that I think a lot of people just don't realize if you're not dealing with this on the day to day level. Is some of this just related to the fact that this is such an emotional and, and personal issue for people that they kind of don't want to peek behind the curtain? And, and I know that's a broad question that you can't specifically answer, Emma, because that that is so granular and individual. But hearing some of these potential implications the many risks that are associated. I'll plead in, I'll join David in pleading ignorance on some of this and say, I, I just assumed bumps in the road where, you know, maybe you don't have a straightforward path from starting IVF to a baby and you, you're more grateful when you get to that other end, but hearing all the health risks involved and, and all of the collateral damage to, to use your phrase, Aaron, that, that can happen along the way. Uh, this just seems like people should care about what's going on behind the curtain, but yet there's, there's something that's blocking them, some cognitive dissonance that's, that's keeping this from coming into the public eye. Yeah. And I think a lot of this just comes down to the fact, I mean, just a knowledge gap. I mean, if you're not struggling with infertility, if you're not looking into IVF, if you're not researching it as a policy initiative, um, like I do for my job, it's just not something you'll necessarily encounter. Um, but there's, there's a really great illustration that uh, we've been talking about a lot the last couple of days. So we know that with in vitro fertilization, the success rates can be rather low. Um, and it's actually a very fraught process that it doesn't really even guarantee a child as the outcome. So using data from the CDC in 2021, which is our most recent year of data available, they reported that there were over 423 
thousand rounds of IVF in a given year. And so that's the process of fertilizing the egg with the sperm, um, in, in a single round at one time. And then from those, uh, 423,000 rounds of IVF, it resulted in about 97,000 children being born, which means that approximately that's about a 23% success rate for all age groups. Now we know that as women age, that those success rates tend to go down rather drastically. But we started asking questions and thinking about this from the pro-life angle. And we wondered what is the success rate for the embryo involved? So in a single round of IVF, the most conservative estimate is that about eight embryos are created at one time, which is already usually more embryos than parents intend to use more, more children than they intend to create with IVF. But on the highest end, we have reports of about 20 embryos being created in a single round of IVF. So think about the case of Paris Hilton in the last year or two, where she desperately wanted a little girl. And so she created 20 embryos in hopes of selecting a little girl. Um, at the end of the day, they still accidentally selected a boy. Um, and then there were 19 other embryos she had no intention of using. So we said, okay, what if we take a very conservative estimate and say, on average, 10 embryos are created in a single round of IVF. So if you do 10 embryos times the 423,000 rounds of IVF in a single year in the United States, you're looking at over 4.2 million children who were created, um, embryonic children who were created every year but only 97,000 children are born, which means that of all the embryos that are created in a given year, only about 2.3% of them actually are born into living children. Wow. The other embryos are either destroyed, they're um, implanted, but unsuccessful, they're frozen indefinitely, or they're donated to research, but there's a lot of loss of human life. I want to go down that path with you just a little bit further here, Emma, just because I think for a lot of folks, um, they don't associate, they associate IVF with creating life, not taking life. Um, yet, uh, both on the abortion amendment uh, that we had here, uh, IVF was thrown into that conversation. Um, and you see uh, in states where uh, where there have been efforts to protect life, even you know at, at, at the point of conception or or prohibit abortion in, in any way, a lot of times you have the IVF industry coming out opposed to laws that regulate or prohibit abortion. Uh, why is that? How, how how does abortion play a fundamental role in the IVF industry? Yeah. So the theoretical answer is that if you treat children like an act of the will and not a gift that's to be received with open hands, that means that in treating children like an act of the will, that there's this fundamental association between making life and taking life, which isn't to say that that is the motivation of even the majority of people who use IVF, right? These are, this is not at all the characterization I want to paint, but there does seem to be this connection if if the assumption is that adults or doctors have the ultimate say over when life begins or when life ends, that there's a freedom to then decide um, when you can take life. And then specifically looking at the fertility industry, something that's rather common is uh, multiple children being conceived, even if you're only implanting one embryo because of the amount of uh, fertility drugs and hormones that are um, being hyper-stimulated in order to encourage implantation that can sometimes actually encourage an embryo splitting into twins or triplets, or if they implant multiple embryos, 
easily turning into three or four children. Now, when that happens, then oftentimes fertility uh, doctors will encourage what they call selective reduction um, or an abortion of one or two of the children to give the other children a higher chance. Um, and because IVF um, and the use of IVF in surrogacy tends to yield uh, higher rates of multiples, it means you're going to have more conversations where abortion is the quote unquote solution to actually conceiving too many children at one time. Yeah, I, I've, I've got a similar question. Thank you so much for going down the um, the whole path of the industry side of this. Uh, you know, we, we're just coming off issue one. Like Aaron said, we had 38% of weekly attending believers vote yes for abortion, right? Um, I'm I'm thinking, man, if, if that's where we are, um, just on, on what, what we understand about abortion, like how far away is is the average believer on this issue um can, can you address it from a theological standpoint i know that's part of your background and and you know is this one of those things where okay it it, it may not be expedient but it is lawful um uh, you know it, it, talk talk about that for a minute yeah, this is this is a fantastic question. And, and I will say among um, so I'm in the Protestant church. Um, and so even among Protestants, there are usually two ways of thinking about this. Um, the first is what I'll call a pro-life version of IVF, which is effectively the ethical vision that I'm sure uh, you and I have talked about today and that we've talked about in other places, which is you should not destroy embryos. Um, you only use the uh, egg and sperm of the mother and father. You're not testing them for genetic diseases or based on the sex, and you're not freezing them indefinitely. So you're creating an embryo to implant it and receiving whatever child the Lord gives you. That would be the sort of pro-life vision of IVF that individuals like Wayne Grudem, um, who has played a massive role um, in the evangelical world, have really advocated for. On the other hand, though, I think there's a fuller uh, vision of the purpose of procreation and the uh, and the way scripture speaks about infertility that's particularly interesting here. So beginning in Genesis 1, uh, God creates man and woman. He blesses them in their his likeness and image and then says, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The proper way I think of understanding this is not so much as a command that you absolutely must fulfill the earth using whatever technological means are necessarily available to you, but that it's a blessing, that it is a blessing to receive children um, to be faithful in the work you've been given, um, to take dominion over the earth, which means that should the Lord give you children, you receive them with uh, open hands and thankful hearts. Um, but in cases where the Lord does choose to withhold children, um, that is an opportunity, right, to pursue what the Lord has for you elsewhere. We get to Genesis 2, and we see that God creates man and woman, um, where they are to leave their families, cleave to one another, and create this um, unified um, unbreakable bond between the two of them. And then we like to understand that is sort of the, uh, Genesis one is the what, and then Genesis two is the how. So what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. And how do you do it? You do it through the bonds of marriage. So right off the bat, we see things like fertility treatments when it comes to donor egg and sperm or surrogacy, which introduces a third party into the act of conception, um, being, uh, 
not included in the biblical vision of procreation. And so a lot of church traditions, Protestant and certainly Catholic would say that third-party reproduction is automatically violating this marital bond that scripture highlights. But then as we go through scripture, we see examples of uh, Abraham and Sarah and their slave Hagar. And if you read the surrogacy literature, it's really quite funny. And they're like, see, even the Bible endorses surrogacy. Everything was great. And you're like, well, (laughs) you read into it a little bit more. Things did not go so well. Keep going. Keep reading. Yeah. uh, Let's just check the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict these days. It is not going well. Um, And so you see examples in scripture where uh, men and women look outside the marriage bond to address infertility using a third party that are either that are expressly prohibited and tend to lead um, to curses, not blessings. But then what about the question of IVF? If you only use the husband and wife, you quote unquote, keep it within the bond of marriage. How should we think about that. And there are a few places that I think um, certainly scripture doesn't give an exact answer on this, right? The technology was only developed in the 1970s, um, early 1980s. And so this is a very recent uh, technological development. But in Micah 2.15, in a few parables in the New Testament, as well as other points um, in like the Genesis narrative, you see this connection where marriage, sex, and procreation are always spoken about together as this unified whole. And this is what we call sort of the package deal vision of this um, unbroken bond between marriage, sex, and procreation, which isn't to say that every uh, um encounter with your spouse must result in, uh, the procreation of a child. Um, we do believe that the Lord has given us dominion over all things, including our fertility, right. To steward that well through natural family planning and other methods. But it does say that there's potentially something problematic when we introduce, um, well, when we separate any aspect of those. So if you think about the introduction of contraception into the mainstream culture, one of the ways that we think about contraception is that contraception actually breaks the divide between sex and procreation um, in such a way, particularly with hormonal birth control, in such a way that not only fundamentally severs something in the bond, but it also then introduces things like abortifacients. And there becomes now a risk to life that was not originally present in this marriage sex procreation unified whole. And I think there's a similar way of applying this to IVF where in using in vitro fertilization or a similar fertility treatment, we're separating uh, this bond of marriage, sex, and procreation. And we're adding in doctors, we're adding in uh, fertility drugs, we're adding in an entire clinical setting where now you don't need, uh, you don't even need a man and a woman necessarily. Um, And you certainly don't need sex in order to create life. And even the language that we use around this has shifted where we once had procreation and now we speak of children like reproduction. Um, And so that's a bit of the theological background and how we thought about these things. Um, But one interesting fun fact that actually a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist here in Washington, D.C. pointed out is that throughout Israel's history in the Old Testament, the false god that they were most likely to worship was the god Asherah the goddess of of fertility. And they pointed out how in each and every case, when Israel would turn away from God and turn to this false God of fertility, um, in order to receive this God's blessings, they uh, would do things like fornicate in its presence or other sexual acts to try to receive fertility blessings. And it really strikes me that 
this desire to control our fertility, to overcome infertility, the anxiety, the uncertainty that's introduced with the fall of man is about one of the oldest tales um, that we have throughout history, that Israel was obsessed with this idea of infertility um, and overcoming it. And that we, I think in a similar way, are terrified by, um, and I think just like really wrecked at a very core level when infertility is present and when things don't work as they ought. But I think scripture provides some clear, if not, um, maybe a little, uh, indirect examples of what it looks like to either turn to God in infertility as Hannah did when she cried out to the Lord for a son, or what it potentially looks like to turn away from God and seek to overcome our infertility by our own means or by secondary means. Uh, good luck following that up guys. Yeah, that was, that was, was, say, Emma, that was exactly what I thought. Exactly. <laughs> it's what you were saying earlier, David, just like you said. Uh, and I think Emma, you've got a couple, uh, articles coming out, got a, uh, uh, working through some of that as well that we'll put in the show notes. Um, I, but I do want to, I want to pivot here just a, a little bit from that, because I think that's such a, a beautiful explanation of, of how Christians should be thinking through this. But then we have to get to the sort of practical political side of this, right? We, we talk about this here at CCB all the time, was where we we start with the biblical worldview, the biblical perspective of this. And then we have to figure out how to, one, we put that in practice in our, our political and cultural engagement, but also in the context that you know, we don't, we're, we're not the kings of, of the state and of the nation. And we, we, we actually are living with a lot of folks who have equal authority as we do to, to decide the outcome of, of these policy decisions. And they don't agree with us. In fact, they probably disagree with us vehemently on this. And so we have to, we have to find a way to do as much good as we can uh, in the interim. Um, and, you know, I, I think that that gets to, you know, I was thinking about uh, this the other day of how, you know, very much how we approach education, right? Where in, in our perfect world, we would be funding students, not systems, and money would follow the kid. And we haven't been able to get to the perfect system we have yet. We don't have the the, the Heritage Foundation, Foundation model ESA bill, but we've got vouchers for every kid. We've made a lot of progress and, and we're going to continue to drive. And at the end of the day, if this is as far as we get, we've gotten really far and we're better off today than we would have been. And I, I think about that a lot about where we are with IVF is that there are some things that we think we could probably do with it uh, today in, in public policy or that we should hope to be able to do with it that, you know, aren't going to you know get to that perfect vision of, of child creation, but is at least going to bring a more ethical or maybe safe or, or even just a measured way of going about this. Um, I do, though, Emma, want to get your your thoughts on this of just I, I will say when I saw this story erupt. My my blood just boiled once again because it, it felt like here we here we go one more time of Christians and Republicans falling for the same trap from the media, right? I mean this this is this is uh, we we could go through whether it was the the riffra fights that we had in Arizona over the Religious Freedom Restoration Act or the bathroom bill in North Carolina, even some of the the BLM stuff we've seen where the media creates the framing of an issue, right, and says this is what happened. And not only is there framing a lie, right, that here, here we had a situation where they're saying, uh, you know, IVF is banned in Alabama, but then their policy solutions are taking us way over the line, right? We see this every time there's, there's a mass shooting, right, is that their, their, their answer to this is over the top. And they try to pressure Republicans uh, and, and uh, conservatives in particular to go along with something that they would never go along with in any other context, what you're talking about in Alabama, waving, you know, uh, stopping families from being able to sue for 
uh, for, for ne neglect with, uh, against these IVF clinics. No way would they ever go along with that in any other context, but they've, they've successfully th done that here. Um, what, what do you think are, are some practical policy or po uh, political steps we could be taking today uh, on the IVF industry? There's three policy ideas that um, I think are really important to consider and really viable um, on the state and federal level. Um, and the first is not really about IVF at all. It's about taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture of infertility itself. So infertility is not a diagnosis in and of itself, but it refers to a host of symptoms that are contributing to the outcome of infertility. So if you look at the CDC, there are about 40 different uh, possible reasons that a woman may be experiencing infertility, anywhere from endometriosis to PCOS to um, hormones that are out, out of balance, a hyperactive thyroid, uh, the list goes on and on. And all of those factors can uh, work together in various ways too. Uh, for men, you see a shorter list, um, but you see things like low sperm count, uh, low sperm motility. And frankly, for men, a lot of the solutions um, can actually be rather natural to restore. Um, so targeted nutrition, targeted workout plans, um, things like that can actually have an outsized impact in helping heal their infertility. So there are a lot of options between uh, natural procreation doctors, restorative infertility treatments that actually focus on going deep into the diagnostics and asking what are the underlying causes of infertility and how can we actually heal that rather than circumventing the problem with in vitro fertilization. And so one thing that I would love to see on the policy level while we're talking about IVF is to expand that to include access and um, availability of, in, of detailed diagnostic testing so that we can actually target the underlying causes of infertility. Because ultimately, if a woman is struggling with infertility, if you give her the option of going through IVF um, and all of the costs and the difficulty that that brings, or of telling her that we could actually heal the underlying cause so that she could naturally conceive and bear as many children as she and her husband want, um, at a fraction of the cost with none of the moral and ethical concerns that IVF introduces, I think most women will always want to turn to that route. But unfortunately, many times doctors simply pivot to IVF the moment uh, the diagnosis of infertility is given. So that would be the first policy idea of just really expanding the landscape um, and looking at maybe better diagnostic features here. Um, and then the other two are far more brief. And so the first one would be to limit the number of embryos that we create at one time. So Germany and Italy, for example, they limit the number of embryos that they create to about two to three embryos in a single round of IVF. And then they say you should only transfer one to three embryos at a given time. And that would be my second recommendation is that we limit the number we transfer. Now, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine has recommended that clinics only transfer one embryo at a time, but that's not actually been passed into law. And so that would be a really easy way of taking the guidelines that are recommended and simply transferring that into a legally enforceable structure. And then when it comes to the number of embryos created, if you reduce the number that you create, you're actually addressing a lot of the concerns and abuses that naturally manifest in the IVF industry, namely with the surplus of embryos. So imagine you're in Louisiana where you can't destroy embryos, right? They protect life from conception. 
if you have 15 embryos created and only have three children, you could end up with as many as 12 embryos left over. And that's an impossible, heartbreaking decision that so many parents have found themselves in. Um, the fact that we have over a million frozen embryos in the U.S. suggests that parents uh, don't want to destroy their embryonic children, but don't know what to do with them either, um, and are paying hundreds of dollars every month just to keep them in storage. So if we can limit the number we create at one time to like a reasonable two to three, then we're actually setting parents up for success, not only in the IVF treatment, but also in the decisions they're making afterwards. Emma, there, there's obviously an environment in which public policy is able to, to get passed and be enacted. And right now, based on what we saw from the Alabama decision, it seems like public opinion is more on the side of, well, you can't do anything that will limit this. So how can we maybe change the discussion around IVF to promote some of those things that you just mentioned as being a, a better alternative or, or not in any scope limiting IVF, but, but just being a better way forward. Yeah. I, I think a really just simple response has been that IVF is legal. Um, no decision, no law is uh, suggesting that we prohibit it or that we make it illegal but we can do it a lot better and we can regulate it better and we can provide the highest standard of medical care for parents and their families so that they are receiving yeah, the, the best possible medical care that we can. Um, I don't think that's a perfect answer, um, but I think sort of pivoting it to really put the emphasis on providing the parents with the best possible care um, and extending that care to their children and, and really just, sh I think, shifting the conversation back to that, as well as addressing what the Alabama decision actually said, what's, uh, what is actually on the table here. Um, yeah, because unfortunately, like you said, most of the laws on the state and federal level that have been introduced um, are simply working to expand IVF access um, and oftentimes without any limitations on the practice. Well, Emma, we're so grateful for all the insight that you've provided today. This has been an extremely helpful conversation for me and I hope for our listeners as well. Before we let you go, could could you give us an overview of where people can find your work or follow you to, to stay up to date on some of these issues around IVF? Absolutely. So if you go to the Heritage Foundation and search for Emma Waters, you can see many of my articles listed there. They're also listed with the Daily Signal, which is the Heritage Foundation's news outlet, or you can go to World Magazine, where I write a monthly column on all things related to family and infertility. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Bear, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative. <laughs>